0: So I would say that we all have trust issues, and it's only right that we have trust issues because we live in an environment where it's very difficult to trust. So I remember when we lived in England, um, my youngest son, Braden, I think he was about eight or nine years old, and he had to use the restroom. You know how that used to be? you just taking the boys' restroom. They used to be able to go in, but now you can't just do that, right? And he knows the drill, or he did. So... I see a couple of men come out of the restroom and they look kind of shaken up after Brayden's gone in there. And then Brayden comes out and goes, Mom, you'd be so proud. I glared at all of them and gave them the dirtiest looks and just looked so tough and menacing at them. I'm like, great, good. But you know, it was for his own protection. Here's my little treasure. And I have to... You know, I have to worry about him when he just needs to go in and relieve himself. You know, there are trust issues, and it's only prudent to respond by locking our doors, hiding our passwords, distrusting phone solicitors, right? My mother-in-law had a, a voice that called her phone and said, Grandma. And she said, Michael. Yeah, it's Michael, Grandma. If I don't get $5,000 right away, this is what's going to happen. And my sweet mother-in-law sent money. And it wasn't her grandson, Michael, at all. She got conned. Um, She ended up calling the police. A week later, they called back, and she said, I know who you are. My mother-in-law is, like, precious beyond precious, and, you know, I know who you are, and I don't have extra money, and you should be ashamed of yourself. You know, the rest of us would be like, ah, oh, stay on the line, I'm going to get you. But, no, she's going to share Jesus with him because he needs it, because he just stole $5,000. And you know what he said? Ha, 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 gotcha, and hung up on her. We live in that kind of world, don't we? You know, I've had my, um, my uh, ATM card, whatever you call it, debit card, copied twice. I don't know who did it. And they've stolen over $1,500 on two different occasions out of my bank account. I think they go, there's that woman. She's a real easy mark. Just get her. Twice. Twice. So you know what I'm doing? I'm covering my thing, trying to get shield protectors on everything. Is it any wonder that we struggle with trust today? Any wonder when this is the world and the atmosphere we live in. So who do you trust? Who can you trust? Well, we usually trust those we know best. We trust those who have proved their integrity to us, that they are trustworthy. We trust those who show that they have the ability to help, the ability to protect. We trust those who love us. We know that they have our best interests in mind. These are the people we trust. But many people have trouble trusting God, partially because they transfer all their insecurities about men and about the world and people who have hurt them onto God. As Martha said to God in Luke chapter 10, Lord, don't you care? My sister has left me to serve all alone. Or as the disciples in the gospel of Mark, when they encountered the storm, Lord, don't you care? When something goes wrong in our life or it's not going as we want it to go, our first response is to say, I don't trust you. You let this happen? Where's the hedge of protection? Where's that almighty shield? Why did this happen to me? And we struggle with trust. May I suggest to you that the true reason we struggle with trust is not so much the hurts and the pains of this world, that should be expected, But I believe that we struggle with trust, one, because we do not know our God. We do not know our God. We do not know the integrity of our God, the faithfulness of our God. We do not know the ability and power of our God. And we do not know how much and how deeply our God loves us. Genesis 1 and 2. Is God's introduction to us that we might trust him. Galatians 1 and 2 clarify to us who God is. The word Elohim and the covenant name Yahweh are both used in Genesis 1 and 2. So it tells us who God is. Secondly, it tells us what God is has done. Thirdly, it tells us what God is like by what he has done. And finally, number four, it tells us God's original good intentions. So who is God? God is introduced as Elohim. This term can mean mighty God or almighty God. God. It's a universal term for God. It would be a term that uh, an idolater, somebody who worshiped images and idols would use. It would be something that the Egyptians might say of their false gods. It's a universal term. But it is telling us that our God, the God of the Bible, is above every other God. In that culture at that time, Genesis one and two would have been like a slap in the face because we had these cultures that were polytheistic. They served many gods and they would say to the people of Israel, you can't say that your God is the only God. And they'd get these bumper stickers with every religious symbol on it. And they put it on the back of their donkey or on the side of their camel. You can't say that, that your God is better than the other gods. And so the revelation of the Bible is that this God is the God of God's. He's greater than every other concept of God. He is greater than every false god because of who he is and what he's done and what he's like and because of his good intentions. God's revelation of himself begins in chapters 1 and 2, but as we find even going through Genesis, we are going to find that God's revelation of himself is progressive. And even for you as a believer, you can keep growing. And your progress as a believer happens the more and more and more and more and more that you know the Lord. Now, I got saved, I think, when I was two, but I did it again, like when I was four and five, just to make sure. I wanted it to take. I used to have this theory that the prayer either took or it didn't take. So if it didn't take, you had to do it again. That was my understanding under 10. And my father used to tell me Bible stories every night when he would do my devotions with me. My dad always did Bible stories. Mom, I might get Cinderella. I might get a princess story. Or I might get a story about a little girl who was really beautiful, but she was really mean, so she turned ugly. Those were her kind of stories, moral stories by Kay Smith. I called them Irish moral stories, because he always came with an Irish curse. <laughs> but as a little girl I began to know about the love of God, about the power of God, of the greatness of God. I began to know these things. I loved Sunday school. I loved the stories. I loved the Bible stories. I remember when I could first start reading the Bible for myself and it began to come alive. But I'm telling you, at almost 60 I am still growing, and there is still so much revelation, so much wonder. I have read the Bible probably 40 times through, and yet every time I go to the Word, like even this morning, there was something fresh, something so revolutionary that God wanted to say to me, and I'll save it for another Bible study, but I'll give you a hint. It came from Luke chapter three, and I was like, what? It was awesome. But you know, it's progressive. It's progressive. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger the closer you get to it. You know, when you stand far off from the sun, it doesn't look that big, does it? You know, sometimes it just looks like, you know, like you could put a dime and block the sun. But the closer you get to it, the higher the mountain, the greater you realize the sun is. The more you read about it, the greater you realize the power of the sun is. So the more you know about God. It's progressive revelation. The greater he he is. He's always been that great. But the more you come into that revelation, you realize that God's revelation of himself is also preeminent. This is the most important information, the most important subject matter, the most important person that you could possibly know And this that we learn about God is life. It is life. And it is nourishment to our very being and soul. This that we learn about God is preeminent because it will change the way we think. It will change our outlook on everything. It will change our demeanor when things happen instead of falling apart and screaming and blaming people, the more we know about our God, the more we know our God, the more our demeanor will be like, wow, I wonder what God's going to do with this one. Amazing stuff. But this revelation of God is also permanent because it does not change. The God that we're looking at in Genesis 1 and 2 is the same God that when you pray, answers. It's the same God that listens to all your intercessions, all your pleas, all your complaints, and it's okay. Process with God. It's the same powerful God In Genesis 2, God is introduced as Yahweh, Elohim, the one recognized by the Israelites as their covenant God. In Exodus 3, 13 through 14, when Moses asked the Lord, wait, you want me to take the people of Israel out of Egypt and you want me to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful king that I know of in the world, And you want me to tell them, let Israel go, and Israel's not necessarily sure that they want to go. How am I going to convince them? Who am I going to say you are? What am I supposed to tell them about you? And God says, Tell them that I'm Yahweh. I am who I am. I am Yahweh. This is the covenant name, this is the name of recognition. God answers this covenant name, I am who I am. There is no one like him. It speaks about his uniqueness. He makes separations, light from darkness, day from night, waters from waters, dry land from waters. This is what this God is like. This is what this God does. Genesis is God's introduction of himself to both his people by Moses into the world. So we begin with, what has God done? Because the more we discover what God has done, the more we'll know about God. We learn that with the power of his word, power of his word And the brilliance of his mind. You know, before you speak, unless you're like me, you think about it. Brian says, did you think about that before you said it? I said, no, that's how I mix my metaphor. That's why I said they've got all their ducks in one basket. If I had taken the time to think about it, I would have said, they've got their eggs in one basket and ducks in one row. But I want to get this out. That's why I said, oh, they're all throwing their name." Into uh, the bullring, and Brian's like, I don't even know what to do with that one. <laughs> but God conceives this, just like you conceive something before you speak it, before you take action. God conceived all of creation in His mind and in His heart, and then He spoke it with His word. That's power. That's power. Think of what he created. He created light. He created cosmos or stars and moons and planets and orbits. He created whole systems. He created the world. He created time. He created luminaries. He created seas and atmospheres and plants, flora and fauna, shrubs and trees. He created birds, he created sea creatures, animals, large and tiny bacteria, amoeba. Genesis is not a detailed account of what God created or how God created it. It is the account that God created it, God. This was in God's mind. This was in God's heart. This is what God, Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim spoke. What is God like? Well, Romans 1.20 tells us, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. In other words, Romans 1.20 is telling us that creation and the order of creation reveals to us God's character it can be seen in his creation. So what do we learn? We learn that God is relational. How? Because he works in conjunction with the spirit and his word to bring forth light and life. Remember, it's the spirit that hovers over the great nothingness, preparing it for the word of God. And the spoken word is the agency of of power, and creativity to infuse the world with whatever God says. It's the agency of power and creativity. We learn that God is powerful. He speaks, and it happens. Voids are filled. Chaos becomes orderly. Darkness is infused with light. We learn that God is holy. There is no one like this God. Uh, I said it earlier, he makes separations, light from darkness, day from night, waters from waters, dry land from waters. We learn that he's orderly. He first creates the substance and then he fills it. Day one is light. Day four is the luminaries or the vessels that will be filled with light. Day two is sky and sea. Day five, the sky is filled with birds and the sea with sea creatures. Day three is land with seed and vegetation. Day six is land animals and mankind. We'll get more into that next week because I have something to say about that, but I don't want to spoil it, especially not when I'm caffeinated. We learn that God is purposeful. There is intention in all he creates. The light illuminates the darkness and creates days and nights. The water is able to cultivate the vegetation that will come. It is all leading to something. God is purposeful. God is intentional. God is good. Seven times God looks at his work and he says, it's good. It's good. That is the Hebrew word tov, tov. It's beneficial, it's pleasant, it's valuable, it's pure or without fault or imperfection. We learn that God is creative. Who but God thought of suns and stars, moons and planets stretching across the vast universe? And to find out that all these galaxies have shapes, different shapes. You know, I love Psalm 19 where it says it's his handiwork. You might crochet. You might embroider, but God shapes galaxies. God created waters, oceans, rivers, streams, mists, and springs. He created skies, moisture, and atmosphere to protect the earth and put layers in the atmosphere. He created land, dust, dirt resplendent with minerals, and vitamins, nutrients. He created vegetation with seeds so it could reproduce itself and be used for food. He created birds and all their varieties, winged, hollow-boned, ability to fly, egg-laying, and this is my favorite, singers. Singers, unless you're talking about crows, they're just gossips. Don't you always feel like crows are talking about you? God created sea creatures, spouting whales, frolicking dolphins, sharks, pufferfish, swordfish, crabs, lobsters, and the such. And he made them so it would clean up the sea. Who but God thought of land animals from ants, I wish he hadn't thought of them. (laughs) Rhinoceros? Like, really, God? What are we supposed to do with this? Hippopotamus? Giraffes? Dinosaurs? Who but God thought of all these different shapes and creatures, all with purposes and uniqueness? Who but God thought of man and woman? and gave them eyes and cells and organs and systems and hearts and minds and the capacity to speak and sing and write and to create and to communicate and interact with God himself. We learn that God is caring. He saw man's loneliness and he wanted Man to no relationship. And so he made a helpmate comparable to him. We learn that God is not a chauvinist, but God is for women. Because the apex of his creation is, and I'll, to quote Adam, whoa, man, the apex, the last. He looked over all of creation and said, it's not good. There's something missing. And that was woman. And he crowned creation with a woman because creation without woman was incomplete and not good. He formed her from Adam's side, taking a rib out of Adam's side. And this reminds us of Jesus on the cross in John 1934, that he was pierced from the side so his blood might be spilled out for his bride. It was a gesture of love and codependency. He let Adam feel the deficit of life without Eve. Adam first named all the animals so he could know the need and be ready to receive it. And then God brings her or presents her to Adam. Like, this is my creation. I made woman. She is special. She is not to be treated disrespectfully. We learn that God is personal because we're told that God formed man and woman by hand. It's the word yatsar. It's the term used for a potter with a clay. And this is what God did with the dust. He formed Adam and Eve from the dust. We learn that God is generous. How? He made man in his own image. He imparted himself what he is, and put it in man. Though later, when we get to chapter three, we will learn how costly, and if the Bible teaches us anything, we learn how costly it was for God to make man and woman in his own image. And again, he made man and woman in his own image. He gave man authority over his creation, God did all the work and said, here, you can tend it. You can name the animals. You can work with me. I'll share. God breathed his own breath into man, something he did not do with any other created thing. He didn't breathe breath into the ant. He didn't breathe breath into the rhinoceros. He breathed it into Adam and said, become a living being. He breathed it into Eve. He gave Adam and Eve unlimited access to every fruit-bearing tree but one. Hundreds of trees. All the trees. Every variety of tree. As much as they wanted. time they wanted. Every tree but one. We learn that God is a God of blessing. In Genesis 1, he blessed the birds and the sea creatures. What is a blessing? A blessing is to give favor, to, to give um, happiness, to impart joy, to say this is good, to give honor, to give respect. God blessed the birds and sea creatures. In Genesis 1.27, he blessed the man and the woman. In Genesis 2.3, he blessed the Sabbath and made it a day of rest. This is a day that God created for man to enjoy God and God to enjoy man. For man to enjoy all the creation of God. Not work, not tend, but just in joy, to rest in it, knowing God has done all the work, to take inventory of all that God has done. We learn that God desires to bless, to enable creation, to function and prosper this blessing. We learn that God is loving to mankind, that mankind is a speciality of creation Again, mankind is in God's image. We see that God is concerned for Adam's loneliness. We see that God works cooperatively with Adam in naming the animals. He doesn't say, this is called this, and this is called this, and just learn these names, Adam. Memorize. Come on, I give you a brain. He says, Adam, what do you want to call it? Who knows? We don't know what Adam called him. We don't know if he called them the scientific name, if he knew Latin in the garden, or if he said, rough, roar, quack, oink, tweet. We don't know what he called them. You know, as parents, you know how it is, like your your child will name something and that's the name of that thing for the rest of their existence and yours too? My grandson. He called Brian and my father Buddy. And it was because every time he saw my dad or he saw Brian, they always said, hey, Buddy. So he called them Buddy back. And so one time my daughter was saying, which one are you talking about? And he said, well, Chocolate Buddy. That was my dad's name. Because he always had chocolate on his desk for the grandchildren. And from then on, my mother called my father Chocolate buddy. From then on, I called my father, hey dad, hey chocolate buddy. That's what we all just called him chocolate buddy. Adam, what do you want to call Chuck Smith? Chocolate buddy. You know, it just is one of those things. What a delight we take. What a delight we take. God is loving to mankind, He puts Adam in His garden. God planted this garden. May I say that God planted a garden with mature fruit-bearing trees. They were already bearing fruit. How old is the earth? I don't know. Because he created it with a backstory and with age. He gives Adam a job because he's loving to tend his garden, a cooperative effort. And he brings the animals to Adam. We realize that God creates beauty The garden had rivers, and these rivers were amazing. One led to a land of gold. One led to a land where onyx and myrrh could be found. So we see also that God creates beauty because the garden had life, fruit, bearing trees. When Eve, we'll read this in chapter three, when she looks at the tree of good and evil, she says it's pleasant to the eyes. She's comparing it to the other trees. Well, they're all pleasant to the eyes. They're all beautiful. We see that the garden had many trees, fruit trees, and had maturity. We learn that God is a God of freedom because he does not restrict the trees in the garden except for one. And yet he allows access to even the prohibited one. Why? Because he's a God of freedom. He gives Adam and Eve a choice, an opportunity for obedience. He doesn't force obedience on them. One way would be to not even give that option of the tree, leave it out of the garden. You might say, I wish he would have, but he didn't because he's a God of freedom. There is love, is only love, and I'm going to quote Chocolate Buddy. Love is only love, and obedience is only obedience if there is a choice or an opportunity to choose something else. Maybe you remember how my father said, I must really love Kay, because there were a lot of pretty girls at Life Bible College, but I chose her. And she'd be like, not that illustration again. But love is a choice. You're choosing this above another option. And so God gives man the freedom to choose love, to choose obedience. We realize that God's work is perfect. Everything God made was perfect. It was good. It was complete. It was orderly. It was lasting. It was fruitful. We realize that God finishes his work. He finishes he says, in six days, the Lord God made creation. Then he called on us. No. It was completed. No loose ants. No circuits left unconnected. So we learn that God is a God that finishes what he starts. And we learn that God is a God of rest because he blessed the Sabbath. He made a day for Adam and Eve to rest, to relax. He's not a taskmaster, he's a father. A father makes sure that a child takes their naps and goes to bed on time. A taskmaster just wants more and more work. He made a day of enjoyment without work, a day of contemplation and enjoyment. I like to think this a front porch day they just to sit on the rocking chair and say, Well, Jab, that farm's looking really nice. It's a front porch day. This God, this God of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, this is your God. He is not just Elohim, a God. He is the God, the great God the God of gods. He is the God that is speaking to each one of us today, saying, trust me, trust me. His track record is perfect. He is relational. He is relational. He wants to be a father to you, a friend to you. He wants relationship, not master to servant. He is holy, There is no other God, no other God, no other concept of God, no other God in any religion that is like this God, no other God who is as orderly as our God. God wants to order your life. There is a progression. There is a purpose in what he is doing, so he is purposeful. You know, the older you get, the more you can look back on your life and go, I needed that. That was right. Oh, how I needed that. At the time when you're in it, you're like, I don't need this. Or we say, I don't need this. I ain't got no time for this. I don't need this. But God knows what we have need. He knows what we have need of. He's purposeful and intentional. God is good. He is beneficial. He is pure. He is true. He is creative. Some of the things he does in your life, they're so creative. I mean, you come up with your plan for God. God, do this and this way and turn right here and turn left there. And God says, okay, thank you very much for your directions, but I'm going to do it this way. And he does the most creative thing. And you're like, I never would have thought of that, but that's actually better. Thank you very much. God is caring. He cares about our welfare. And he has already supplied the need and supplying the need. God loves women. He loves them. We are not a second thought. We are not an afterthought. We are the crown of his creation. He loves women. God is personal. He is personal. He doesn't send an angel to help us. He himself comes and is our help. See, that's what we try to do for God. God is generous. He is generous with us. He gives from his abundance, the abundance of his grace. He is a blessing God. He loves to give. He loves to show favor. He loves to supply all our needs according to his riches in glory someone describing the name Yahweh from the book. I um, can't remember the name of the book, but he talked about how, <laughs> caffeine, he talked about how God is the water looking for the thirsty. He is the bread. We would see Jesus. He is the bread looking for the hungry. This is our God. He is a blessing God. He is a God that longs to bless, to give. He's a giving God. He's a loving God. This is our God. Now I got to find the right note because they're all confused. So I was trying to cheat and hope that you wouldn't see me doing this, but you caught me. Aha. He is an emancipating God, freedom-imparting God. First thing he does when he saves us is he emancipates us from the power of sin. He gives us freedom in Christ. For where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty for all. He's a perfect God, absolutely perfect. And he's a finisher. He who has begun a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6, he'll finish it. He's just getting started. He will finish that work. And he is concerned for our needs. He knows when we need rest. And he supplies that rest to us. The more you know your God, the more you will trust him. Not just the more you can trust him. The more you'll have the capacity to trust. But the more you will trust him and the more you will entrust to him. Paul said, I know who I've believed in. See, I know. I know my God. And I am fully convinced that he is able to keep, and that word keep means to safeguard, to protect. I am fully convinced, fully persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've entrusted to him. You know what I've learned? I've learned that my children are safer in God's hands than they ever were in my house. Whether they live in New York City, or near San Francisco, San Francisco, or whether they park in a dark garage and then take an elevator up to their apartment every night, My children are safer in God's hands than they ever were in mine. I entrust my children every day into the hands of my God, every day. Lord, you watch them because you know I can't. You watch them because you know I want to. But you can protect them. You can keep them. You can woo them. You can meet all their needs. Better than I can. God, you can meet their emotional needs. You can meet their financial needs. You can meet their spiritual needs. You can meet their physical needs. <clears throat> you can meet their biological needs so much better. Oh, thousand times better. A billion times better than my best efforts. You are God creator. You are Elohim. You are Yahweh. The more, the more you know God, the more you will trust him, the more you will entrust to him. And the more you trust and entrust, the more you will realize that you are safer in his hands than in your own hands. Much safer. God wants to show each of us the magnificence of his name. He wants us to know what the name I am, that I am, means personally. God wants us to know his work, his ability to do the unfathomable, the impossible, the unthinkable, the creative, and the wonderful in our lives. He wants us to see his work And know his work. God wants us to know his person. All he is. All he is. All he's doing. From the beginning of creation, God has wanted relationship with mankind. And God's revelation to us, this beginning revelation, is that we might know our great creator, and have access to this greatest of all gods through his son, his son, Jesus, his word, his agency of creation, Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God. All that God is, all that God has done and is able to do is available through to us, is available right now, is availed to us and accessible to us through Jesus Christ. We can go into the very throne room of God. We can approach one who is brighter than the sun shining in its strength and get close and intimate because we are covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We can know God We can receive all we need from this great God because Jesus has given us access by his blood. We are covered and all that God is, is now ours in relationship because of Jesus Christ. This is what God has done. This is who God is. And it's time to know our great creator personally. That we might begin to experience all he is relationally. That we might know by experience that our God is the God of gods. The King of kings. The Lord Almighty. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand up. God, we pray that as we go through this book of Genesis, the beginning, this book of revelation, this book of covenant, that we might come to know you, the true and living God, and have relationship with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.